0: I'm Russ White, and it's a privilege to welcome Philip Hart. I'd like to introduce you to Phil, who earned a sociology master's degree in 1970 and a PhD in sociology in 1974 from the College of Social Science. Hart has dedicated his career to studying race in America through the lenses of sociology, urban planning, and social justice. He's authored more than 100 books and articles on race in America and has served as a leader both on campus and around the country on race related initiatives. We're going to talk with Phil about his time as a student activist on campus and his perspective on the challenges our nation is facing today. And uh, Phil, it's great to have you join us from California today. Thank you,
1: Russ. I'm very glad to be here.
0: You know, when you started on campus in the late 60s, Phil, can you describe a little bit what the campus and the nation felt like then?
1: Well, when I first arrived at MSU uh, in the fall of 66, it was a football Sunday. So it was Bubba Smith and Duffy Doherty. Uh, That was what was the center of attention. And as we got to April 4th, 1968, with the assassination of uh, Martin Luther King, Jr., the mood changed totally. And I became very active in uh, campus life and was one of the founders of the Black Student Alliance that uh, began putting pressure on the university to respond to the racial injustice and the urban protests that were going on starting uh, after the death of uh, Martin Luther King, Jr.
0: And did... Being an activist and a leader come naturally to you, Phil, or talk about some of the things you did on campus at the time?
1: Well, yeah, I was always always a leader. I grew up in Denver. I was a student athlete. I went to East Denver High School. I played sports, played sports at the University of Colorado, I was an honors graduate before I came to MSU, and I worked in the uh, sociology department, uh, a research fellowship. Uh, in the sociology department, in the labs that we were studying decision-making. So I've, uh, I came from leadership in my family, on both sides of my family. So when we got to 1968, I was a graduate student. So when the campus turned to kind of turmoil and distress after Dr. King's death, uh, I took on a leadership role in terms of trying to organize graduate students and uh, undergraduate students, both black and white, but predominantly black in terms of what kind of action can we take to have the the university respond to this tragedy? And one of the responses uh, in 1969 was the uh, university put in place the the Detroit Project, which was a project that that began bringing uh, more and more black students uh, to MSU from uh, from Detroit. And then the other thing was the... uh, Formation of the Center for Urban Affairs.
0: Yes, didn't we have the very first College of Urban Affairs? Joe Darden, I think it was, who led that. Well,
1: the first dean was actually Bob Green. Uh, Bob Green was the, uh, uh, he was a professor of education. He was the, he worked for Dr. King. He was the education director for the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, but he's also a professor of education at MSU. So when we, uh, uh, when the university founded the Center for Urban Affairs, in 1968, Dr. Green was the, the first uh, director, and he was the first director of the College of Urban Development, and he was succeeded by Joe Darden.
0: What was the mission of that program at the time, and, and how did it evolve while you were involved with it?
1: Well, the Center for Urban Affairs was uh, an effort to uh, push the university into urban issues more directly, both in Lansing, Detroit, and other cities around the uh around the state. And for example, Michigan State University is a land-grant institution uh, using the Agricultural Extension Station. What we did was, I uh, was the person that Dr. Green sent to Lansing in 1969 to set up the first urban extension station in Lansing to use the same principles uh, that the land-grant, that the Agricultural Extension used, that is to, to use knowledge to, uh, to cause productive action. So we set up the Urban Extension Station in 1969 as part of the programming of the Center for Urban Affairs. And I was a person that set up the Urban Extension Station.
0: And Phil, what's your thoughts on the current situation in our country? Uh, it seems different now that George Floyd incident has happened, but what are your thoughts? Is, is this unique this time? What are your thoughts on where we're going as a country?
1: Well, uh, I was talking to my uh, brother in law today. He turned 88 today. He's a retired judge. And he was saying that uh, 1968 and 2020 are two of the most turbulent years that he can remember in his 88 years. I'm 76 years old, and I remember 68 as being very turbulent. It was a good year for me because I met my wife, Tanya, in 1968. We got married in 1969 in Muskegon, Michigan, her hometown. But 1968 was a very turbulent year in terms of the assassination of Martin Luther King, the assassination in June of Bobby Kennedy, who was running for president, the urban unrest in the cities that followed the death of Martin Luther King. And you fast forward to 2020 with the, uh, you know, basically the lynching of George Floyd by a white police officer in Minneapolis and the uh, urban unrest and the protests that have followed it's a little bit different because it's more, it's, it's more multiracial, multicultural, and it's not only been uh, US cities and small cities, small towns, big cities, but also London, Berlin, cities in, the, in, the, in Europe. Uh, and also what I think about is one of the things that uh, Martin Luther King spoke about. He talked about the arc of history said, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice. And I think the thing that I see different now from, say, 1968, is that I think the arc of history is now bending towards justice. So as you think about where all of this is leading today, uh, we're obviously in the midst of a pandemic. I've been on lockdown in my house since March 11th. Uh, that plus the collapse of the economy because of the, our response to the pandemic and then the urban unrest, it's it's, it's its different than 1968 in that we've got the pandemic laid over these other events, but it, it's, it's similar in the sense that urban protests, but the protests are multiracial. So you have, in my mind, uh, non-black people are waking up to the plight that We have been expressing as black people in America since we got here in 1619 Been a history of uh, racial oppression, racism, and and white supremacy, frankly.
0: And Phil, you've written and spoken a lot about a solutions-oriented approach to social injustice. Can you talk about what you mean by that? Well, in some ways, I mean, I'm, I'm a sociologist,
1: and I'm also an urban planner and developer. So if you look at uh, blacks in America and you look at uh, the uh, lack of ability to create wealth in our communities, uh, to create jobs in our community, one thing, that I, one approach I've taken in, in urban areas starting in inner city Boston was to create an urban industrial park that was uh, tech oriented and biotech oriented and trained black people in those communities to go on these 21st century jobs. Uh, I've also written about um, solutions. Uh, For example, in 2007, I was asked by UCLA Anderson School, they were doing a publication on solutions for our city. And I wrote two chapters in their publication looking at uh, solutions that address diversity and inclusion. I looked at uh, one chapter that that addressed jobs, how solving the jobs, housing and education puzzle. And I look at uh, what UCLA Anderson forecast did in 2007, solutions for our city focused on LA. Today, what we need is really, what are solutions for the United States of America to address racism, uh, the question of diversity and inclusion, wealth creation on the part of black Americans, And interestingly enough, uh, a a Michigan congressman, John Conyers, in June of 1989 introduced a reparations bill into Congress. It's never made it out of committee, but uh, the issue of reparations has become a very big topic in the black community now. And BET founder Bob Johnson, who's America's first black billionaire, just recently did a case analysis of reparations. What would it take to Put reparations make reparations a reality. His case analysis uh, said that there are 40 million black Americans, according to the last census. Uh, if uh, we're talking about equal reparations, 350,000 per person, that would equal 14 trillion dollars in reparations. And he also identifies where in the federal budget those, monies, those funds could come from. And I say to myself, if Bob Johnson, the first black billionaire, found out how to become a billionaire in America, he, 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 he knows where the money is. And so I'm, I'm willing to follow his, his lead in terms of how feasible is it to address reparations in today's world as a possible solution. Then another aspect that I've been looking at is that you look at the number of universities that have uh, ties to the slave trade. You look at uh, Georgetown University, Princeton, Yale, uh, Harvard, uh, University of Virginia, Wake Forest University. And so what I've proposed is that each of those universities has an endowment. Uh, Maybe what they should do as a possible solution is is dedicate 1% of the value of their annual endowment to to scholarships for black students, research funds for black scholars, endowed chairs for black scholars. Then the third prong I've been looking at is the role of corporations in the uh, slave trade. It was just last month that the uh, state insurance company, Lloyd's of London, admitted that they were they were involved in slave trade. So in that regard, what I propose is that uh, looking at the the market capitalization of corporations, public comp some of them public companies, that annually they devote one percent of their uh, market capitalization to to investing in black businesses, investing in black communities, and, and essentially reinvesting. In the, in the black community that they, have ex, that they exploited as corporations involved in slave trade. So that's kind of a broad three-pronged approach that I have as a possible solution moving forward that addresses social justice and wealth creation, reparations, universities' responsibility, corporate responsibility.
0: It sounds so sensible me- when you talk about it, Phil. I mean, wh- why do you think reparations is such a lightning rod all the time? The topic itself. Well,
1: it has precedence. For example, the United States uh, made reparations to Japanese Americans after World War II, because if you remember, Japanese Americans were, were rounded up and sent to internment camps, essentially concentration camps, because they were Japanese Americans. They were thought to be threats because we we're in a war with Japan uh, in, in the Pacific Theater, and that uh, they lost their possessions, homes, businesses, so the United States made reparations to Japanese Americans. So we have a precedent. So if you look at the legal value of a precedent, we have a precedent most recently with World War II to paying reparations to a group that had been wronged by the, by the United States government. And so the reparations for black Americans is, follows in suit with the reparations to Japanese Americans. And you look at the role of Michigan State University, we were talking, Russ, uh, offline before we started, It was 50 years ago that Cliff Wharton became the president of MSU, the first African-American president of a major predominantly white public research university. And that was 50 years ago. So in in many ways, Michigan State has been ahead of the curve. And I would expect that uh, Michigan State among uh, not only land-grant universities, but universities at large would be in the lead in terms of, 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 of addressing the issues that I've raised relative to reparations, the role of universities, the role of corporations. And Michigan State has a significant uh, uh, population of of Black students. Uh, Even when I was there, and that was 1970, 1974, the number of Black students that we had at MSU uh, exceeded the number of Black students at at several uh, historically Black colleges and universities. So Michigan State's Uh, traditionally been in the lead in terms of uh, issues that relate to black Americans.
0: Phil Hart is with me on Go Green Go Live. It's the show dedicated to highlighting Spartans and the difference they're making in our world. Uh, Phil earned master's and PhD degrees in sociology from MSU back in the early and mid-70s. And we're talking about a lot of the uh, situations going on in our country today. And Phil, I wondered if it it boggles your mind like it does mine and many others, that all of this centuries of discrimination, simply because our, the pigmentation in our skin is different. Is, doesn't it boggle your mind at times? Well, yeah, and, and you look
1: at you know the sociology of race, say, well, is race a social construct or is it something that is real? And we all have uh, red blood streaming through us. We all have lungs, same organs. But we found a way through racial pigmentation to think that we're different when in actuality we're not different. But unfortunately, from the standpoint of the history of the United States, the difference in racial pigmentation led to the Atlantic slave trade. My wife and I produced a documentary film in 1990 that aired on BET called Dark Passages. It tells the story of the Atlantic slave trade. We shot the the film on location in Senegal, the Gambia, and in Williamsburg, Virginia, uh, to look at uh, how basically the underdevelopment of Africa via the kidnapping of uh, men, women, and children to bring them to these shores led to the uh, overdevelopment of the United States and how the Africans and the descendants of Africans like myself have really not gotten our due for how our efforts contributed to building up this country. The first slave ship landed in Jamestown, Virginia in 1619. So as I think about the COVID-19 virus and we're searching for a vaccine, I put it in the context of what I refer to as COVID-1619, that is we need to find a vaccine for the virus of racism. Uh, that re- that virus has been with us here in this country since 1619, precedes the Spanish flu of 1918 by uh, 300 years. We're 401 years now in 2020 from 1619, but we're still grappling with racism. And the source of racism, like I said earlier, is basically white supremacy. And white supremacy is based upon the notion that if you have white pigmentation, that you are superior to someone whose pigmentation is black or brown. Like I'm, I'm a, a light-skinned Negro, if I can put it in that way. I'm a, what I call a splash brother. I was, I was Steph Curry before Steph Curry. But I know where my light pigmentation comes from because my great-grandfather, Joe Silas Hart from Tennessee, his father was a white plantation owner. His mother was a, a slave woman who worked in the kitchen. And the white plantation owner, Mr. Hart, uh, got uh, Joe Silas Hart's mother, my great-great-grandmother, pregnant and had Joe Silas Hart. So Joe Silas Hart is a fairly light-skinned guy. I'm a fairly light-skinned guy. Sometimes I've been mistaken for being Jewish. I've been mistaken for being Mexican-American. I've been mistaken for being Middle East. I'm basically African-American. Whatever I'm mistaken for, it's, it's essentially usually um, a white person deciding that I am or am not worthy of whatever based upon who they think I am, judging by the color of my skin, despite my being, a, you know, a light-skinned Negro,
0: quote, unquote. Phil, a term we've been hearing more in the news lately is white fragility. What, what is that?
1: I really don't know. What white fragility is? If you look at the demographics of where we're headed, uh, demographers predict that anywhere between 2042 and 2050, the United States of America is going to be a majority-minority country. Many cities now are majority-minority. For example, Los Angeles is majority-minority, meaning the majority of the populations in Los Angeles and Los Angeles city and county is either black or brown. By 2042 to 2050, demographers predict that the United States of America is gonna be majority, minority. White fragility may be reflected in the fact that there are white people who are perhaps a little concerned about that. And that uh, they think that uh, whether we think about uh, whatever slogans you may wanna think about that suggests going back in time to where uh, the country was majority white, those days are changing and uh, demographers all predict that that's going to happen with the next 20 to 30 years. So that may be leading to a lot of the, the kind of backlash that we're seeing now in relationship to Black Lives Matter becoming a very global movement. I mean, I read something recently said that Black Lives Matter in terms of a social movement and the number of people that have been marching over the past few months, you're talking about 15 to 20 million people. That's a, might be the largest social movement in, in in history. And there's going to be some backlash to that and whether that can be attributed to the white fragility, I don't know, because I'm not quite sure what white fragility is or what it, the source of that could be. I understand well, so- black fragility, if you want to put it that way, because yeah. black fragility means that you've basically been excluded from opportunities in this society. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm fortunate I was able to graduate from a great high school. I went to a great public university, University of Colorado, came to a a great public university in Michigan State University and have had a very good career. But, uh, you know, I know throughout my life, I've I've been discriminated against in different ways. I've had confrontations with the police. I had one issue in in, in Lansing, as a matter of fact, in late 1960, before 68, before my wife and I got married where my wife, her roommate, my roommate, my, her roommate's a boyfriend, and I were returning to East Lansing from a party in Lansing. We are passing the state capitol, and we saw white Lansing police officers trying to arrest a black guy, and they are being fairly brutal about him. It was about 1 o'clock in the morning. And we descended upon them and, and basically got them to back off the guy, and they, they gently then put him in the squad car, took him to the Lansing police station. We followed them. Uh, we made, went into the police station, made sure they didn't brutalize him in the police station. Uh, we became friends with the guy. He was a Lansing resident, lived not too far from where Irvin Johnson grew up in Lansing. Uh, he was a jazz musician. We became a very good friend. I looked back on it and said, we saved his life. I'm not going to say his name, but we saved, he passed away about 10 years ago. We saved this guy's life. Could he have been a George Floyd of 1968? But we intervened and we saved his life right at the base of the state capitol in Lansing.
0: Just wondered uh, what you could uh, suggest, how we can all help make a difference in our own communities on this subject.
1: Well, one of the best selling books, I think it's the top selling list on New York Times bestseller list, is talks about how we can all be anti racist. Racism, like I said, is a virus. If, if in our local communities we can be anti racist and, and take proactive steps to make sure that racism is eliminated even before we find a vaccine covid 1619 is a vaccine that is needed to fight racism but before we find a vaccine just like before we find a vaccine for covid 19 we can take steps the equivalent of wearing a mask the equivalent of f- social distancing but all of us in our local communities, if we take an anti-racist stance and stop using skin color as a way to say whether someone is good or bad or or that we're going to treat them in a certain way, that's a good first step to take.
0: Well, Phil, I want to thank you so much for joining us this evening and uh, sharing your views on these important topics. And, and thanks for all you do and go green.
1: Thank you, Russ. Go green.
0: Go white. My guest has been Phil Hart a social justice warrior and civil activist. He's been talking about these important issues going on in our country.